millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. Nile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Total Wine & More, we know what pairs perfectly with summer. Go ahead, test us. What goes best with a beach trip? This crisp rosé. A pool party? Try these craft beers. Oh, you're good. Wondrous selection, helpful guides, ridiculously low prices. Total Wine & More. So, Craig, I was in uh, town today. I was in Dublin's Fair City, a.k.a. No Craig Zone. And I went yeah, to... Yeah, I can't remember what it's like. Uh, I'll tell you what it's like. I, I went to approximately 20 different places in search of the final ever edition of Q Magazine, which we were discussing on last week's show, of course. I can't find yeah. it, man. Nowhere to be found. I went to fucking Eason's. They had like this uh, weird thing up in their shop, that, like a sign that kind of said, um, we're, like, we're, we're no longer selling magazines for a while. It was uh, a notice that said, uh, our magazine department is in the process of being built back up over the coming weeks. Please bear with us and apologies for any inconvenience caused over like a giant stack of cards against humanity and monopoly. Um, I went to music shops, I went to random news agents, and I couldn't find it. One news agent I went to, by the way, people will think I'm making this up, I am not. The only magazine that they had in the news agent, and they had it over like three or four different shelves, was Hot Press magazine. And I was just like... Of course. I was just like Homer Simpson... The like, old reliable. Homer Simpson yelping and running out of the fucking store. I know friend of the show, former guest George Morahan, has managed to find one in a super value. But right now, before we start the show, I'm putting out the call to all listeners. If anyone in Dublin, city centre, sees the final <laughs> edition of Q magazine, I want you to at me on Twitter, at Dave or the yeah. show, at No Encore yeah. Show, and let me know where you found it. Because I want the magazine. Thank you very much. This is this is the least I can do. I've got to assume it, there's like there's a spot somewhere in the the wilds of Kildare out here where I'll find it. It'll be some in some like garage or something. I haven't had a look myself. I was actually going to buy it for like sentimental value on like online. Is it, did you try? Are they not selling this directly from their website? Actually, it's Q. I don't even know if they have a website to be honest. Yeah. Well, look. Listen. It's a case of wait and see. Watch this space. I've got four weeks to get it done. You know, I can overcome this strange. Pro- <laughs> Dave, prior to the the last issue, what was the la- the last last issue of Q you actually purchased? I think I said on the show last week because we went to Norway for the for Coleman's wedding. It oh, was, was that? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. But Perfect, before um, before air, that though, before airport that, fair, though, uh, I can't remember for sure. Yeah, it's been a very long time. Anyway, look, let's not beat around the bush here. We've got a big episode ahead, so hit the fucking music. 
my name is Dave Hanratty, and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 224 of the No Encore Music Podcast. I'm recording this with Craig Fitzpatrick, live and in charge from Kildare. <laughs> I'm not sure about in charge. Hey, Dave, what's up? You know, this is like only the second most glamorous uh, group Zoom I'm having this week. Usually it's my main go-to, but I was on a pretty special Zoom call this week, Dave. Tell me all about it, please. So work have been organising these like lockdown learning sessions and we had this week, I'm not sure how much I can divulge of it because of like confidentiality stuff, but it was the one and only L to the OG. OG, dude, be the OG. <laughs> yeah. Brian Cox. Oh my God. Fame and Manhunter fame. Uh, yeah. Dishing out his expertise in like film and just basically talking politics and being a kind of lovable curmudgeon, as we all know him to be. Very jealous. But yeah, that was Very amazing. Uh, been a huge fan of his for many, many years, long before Succession. I think he's fucking amazing. He's probably my joint favourite actor, along with Mads Mikkelsen. Did you get to ask him anything? I didn't, because I arrived in about like five minutes late, and there was like a side chat ream of questions. And as it was, none of them were asked, um, except for one like client question at the end. It's like, oh, okay, of course. Um, but no, I was just happy to be there. At one stage, my square was right next to his square. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I presume there's a screenshot Taking of this covert, somewhere. like screenshots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what it's come to, really. Yeah. I feel like you went big there, Craig. And then by the end, it was a little bit disappointing. But I'm still jealous. I'm still a bit envious of the situation. But will people be jealous of us? Because we get to talk about the new Taylor Swift album later in the show. We waited an entire week. I know that's not really the done thing these days. We should have uh, put out another emergency episode at like five in the morning or something after it just came out like other people might do. But we thought we'd give it some time, seeing as it is apparently the best album of 2020. But we'll talk about that. Taking a few few little digs there, Dave, are you? I, I miss you. <laughs> I'm actually intrigued to hear what you have to say about the album. I'm very uh, excited about stuff. it. Not that I'm not always hyped for your well, opinion. Well, to be fair, on we'll last just get a little show, worrying at times. Uh, yeah, uh, there's no need for that. <laughs> on, on last week's show, I didn't have much to say about the album, so this week is different. I've got maybe too much to say, but we'll talk about that. We also have some news, and we have a top five this week that I'm very, very excited about, Craig. It's unusual collaborations inspired by the fact that Taylor Swift, of course, hooked up, musically speaking, with Aaron Desner of the National Fame, and... Uh, it's going to be a bit of an interesting grab bag, but we'll we'll get through all that. Lots to talk about. Patreon.com slash no encore if you want to help support the show. And it's time to move yeah. into the news, Craig. So only one place to start this week, uh, even though I feel like this story happens every year. But I feel like we've even done it on this show before. But um, hit the music, please, Adam. Right, Craig, Metallica's Lars Ulrich has defended the much maligned sound of his snare drum on the band's 2003 masterpiece, Sane Anger. I feel like he's done this quite a lot, but he did a new interview with uh, Sirius XM in the middle of the week and said that, yeah, <laughs> he said, I stand behind 100%. 
uh, at that moment that was that was the truth just my personality i'm always looking ahead always looking about the next big thing that's just how i'm wired he continued whether it's metallica always thinking ahead or in my personal life and relationships whatever i'm doing i'm just always thinking ahead sometimes arguably i spend too much time in the future but i rarely spend any time in the past and so the only time that stuff it. really comes up is in interviews <laughs> that's the quote <laughs> it's very david brent or arguably i spent too much time in the future (laughs) yeah that's the problem with the album um i haven't heard him come out this strongly um in defense of the sound he explains as well how how it kind of came together and it was just him um hearing james working on a riff he was playing it in the control room he's like i ran up i was like i need to put a beat behind that i ran into the tracking room i'm just imagining him like scampering in I sat down and played a couple of beats. Um, so basically, he forgot to put on the snare. Um, and he was like, it was weirdly odd and kind of cool. So he just left it off for the rest of the sessions. And um, I don't know if he's like retrospectively kind of adding logic to this or defending it. But he's like, his his thought at the time apparently was, that's cool. That's different. That'll fuck some people up. That sounds like that's part of the pummeling. Um, and it became a huge kind of debated thing. He thought people were going to, you know go mad about it which they did quite rightly because it sounds horrible <laughs> no it sounds great and i have to say you know I, I i admire him i admire him for for taking this stance and not backing down uh fight the power Lars. one man however who does not have the courage of his convictions and folded like a fucking ironing board about 24 hours later is andrea bocelli the most amazing tenor of all time apparently uh, italian tenor legend apologized on wednesday for appearing to belittle the coronavirus by saying he didn't know anyone who'd gone into intensive care and thus, you know, he was wondering about the legitimacy of it. Also, he had it at one stage, I believe, and said it was not a great time. So it's kind of odd of him to turn around and be like, you know, hey, we need to get back to Very doing things. Weird. Uh, he said, like, it's not as serious as authorities were saying because he didn't know anybody uh, personally who had, you know, been in ICU and urged people to disobey rules still in urged place. Them. Like I have, I haven't seen the original uh, Italian, but that sounds very strong, doesn't it? <laughs> you gotta wonder. With I like these the things, Twitter. Yeah. I like the Twitter hashtag that was trending. Uh, obviously, it was in Italian. It was hashtag Bocelli for go natty, uh, which is shame on you, Bocelli. Which is kind of like, like a classier Twitter hashtag than we're used to. I just really like that. W- would you have preferred uh, Andrea Bocelli's over party? You know, that, that'd be the one to go for. <laughs> that would. That's my. That's always my go-to. <laughs> what kind of party would that be? Um, but yeah, like it was weird because obviously he was a big part of like that performance um, where he was like playing, he was performing in like the empty um, Milan Cathedral, which was like li- live streams, the Music for Hope thing. And everyone's like, oh, such a stirring thing. It's like, you know, at this awful time, it's really keeping people together. And then him just being like, eh, it's no biggie. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's odd, but... um, It's time to break the rules. Uh, There's not an actual quote, by the way. Please don't don't quote me on that. However, a couple of quotes that came his way from the always fair and just cauldron that is Twitter. Uh, Stick to singing, one person said, adding that the blind superstar was fortunate enough to spend the lockdown, quote, in your massive villa and not have anyone in your family die. Now, I have to ask a question here, and I want to preface this by saying flat out, I, I need to be clear here. I'm not about to mock... Andrea Bocelli for being blind. I'm not about to mock anyone for being blind. I, I have no, nothing, no, nothing on that score. I just want to know something. It's when Andrea, yeah. when Andrea Bocelli gets hate online via Twitter, is it someone's job to go to him and read all this out? I mean, like, how does that work? Surely, like, is there someone in the Andrea Bocelli organization who has to, like his publicist has to, and then if you're that person, are you just like, 
are you being very selective of what you're putting forward to him? Because I mean, I was going to say, is any publicist's job to arrive at their artist door and be like, well, I've got all the hate tweets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would imagine those clippings are very, very selective. Um, I don't know what, what his setup is. I mean, obviously, I was going to say, with, with technology nowadays, <laughs> like he would just have the voice kind of activated thing on Twitter and stuff. So I haven't actually seen that. That sounds even worse though. Use, but it can just, that sounds even more it can just like... be read out dispassionately by like a Stephen Hawking voice. Yeah, no, that's no good. I hope your entire family, yeah, blah, blah, blah. The point <laughs> is he did calm down and apologize. He said to all the people who felt offended or suffered because of how I expressed myself, undoubtedly not in the best possible way and the words I used, I asked they accept my sincere apologies as my intention was quite the opposite. So we'll all move on. Andrea Bocelli, famously, increasingly problematic man, uh, hopefully learning some lessons. It wasn't a great apology, was it? He's just, it was kind of like, I'm sorry if you're upset about it, but hey, like there was no real rationale offered as to why he was, it sounds like he's gone down some w- weird conspiracy hole, which is depressing to me. Oh, but anyway, after him now. Are you people have <laughs> a home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well, you know, the COVID-19 isn't done yet. Uh, I meant in terms of this news section. <laughs> It's, it's certainly not done yet either. Before yeah, before we started recording, I was like, thanks Dave for putting the running order together. And it's a kind of nice cheery one this week. And you're like, yeah, it's nice and light in, in parts. <laughs> well, well, this, this one, COVID, I, this one is. not done yet. <laughs> the chain smokers have finally been uh, put uh, under some kind of official investigation. Having hold, uh, They held a charity concert in Southampton, New York on last Saturday alongside Goldman Sachs executive David M. Solomon, a.k.a. DJ Diesel. This was called Safe and Sound. Be a fun time. <laughs> I believe it was a heavily branded event. And video surfaced from the concert appearing to show attendees flouting social distancing. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced a New York Department of Health investigation into the event. So they're going down, Craig, is what I'm saying. How many years in prison do you think that they should serve? For crimes against music or like health violations? I figured this could be like like, like, like would, what they do in like the movies when they're going after the mob. It's like a RICO case. So you're just using this to get to them <laughs> yeah, yeah. and punish them for their actual <laughs> crimes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I still can't believe we were responsible for blaring out a Chainsmoker song from the Workman's Club stage, which is, I'm guessing, the only time that's happened. We did a live show previously there. Uh, it was, I believe, the Chris Martin fucking collab, which is one of the worst songs of recent years. Isn't that the song, and, the, yeah. the Liverpool? The Liverpool. Hi, hello, I'm from the 1940s. The Liverpool. Didn't when Liverpool, the they, they, uh, didn't they raise the Premier League trophy? I didn't watch it, of course, because I'd rather I think it was, myself I think it was a sky tails. full of stars, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, for some reason, I thought Might have been was, a sky full of stars. They yeah. had a Kanye song as well. They had um, All of the Lights, which was like, oh, really insult to injury. How dare you? Um, I did not watch that No, I didn't. Ceremony. I did no. I saw enough people on Twitter crowing about it and I moved on with my life. Um, Chainsmokers, yeah, not an act I would be terribly uh, interested in. I guess it's interesting, though, because we've talked in previous episodes about how it's been like country gigs or it's been kind of small stuff or even that new metal festival, although they appear to follow the rules because, again, new metal, you know, it's a progressive genre. It just seems like the Chainsmokers are like big enough names to be like, aha, you guys are fucked. I'm sure nothing will happen. Yeah, I know what you mean, being made like an example of. I would be very surprised if the liability lies with the artist and not the organiser, if there is any. Um, So they'll get away with it again, (laughs) those bloody chain smokers. (laughs) Um. (laughs) I've got a really boring story here about the stars aligning for political clarity purposes. If you want to just move past it, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Well, there's been an open letter. Um, I don't know, Dave, I always like an open letter. (laughs) We're at that age, are we? Um, yeah, 
we're kind of are. I mean, it's a story we've we've generally talked about uh, in the past about like unauthorized use of music by politicians. Um, a bunch of artists have moved to stop that with an open letter. Um, Mick Jagger being one, Lord Pearl Jam, Courtney Love, all the biggies, <laughs> Jason Isbell, Green Day, um, and I, yeah, I guess you would be very very upset given the current climate if you were a progressive artist and Trumpian types were blaring out your tunes to kind of rally the fucking alt-right masses something must be done as i'm sure an open letter will work it always does dave absolutely yeah it's like sign the petition you know get it done so yeah. i guess uh, finally in this new section which we are kind of racing through because there's an awful lot to talk about in acts two and three of there the show is. uh this will lead us in nightly to, nicely to the record though aaron desner he of the national fame he of co-writing and playing a lot of music on the new taylor swift record folklore uh, has been talking about it quite a lot this week actually and he spoke to zane Lowe, i believe in, during an interview and uh, there's a nice little cute story here he lied to his child craig he did the worst thing imaginable yeah if that's your idea of cute um the white lie it was probably the grimmest news story we have this week to be honest dave so he's broken a sacred bond <laughs> yeah he said um that you know he didn't want to be the one that like spilled the beans on the project because obviously these things are you know you can't talk about them so he says he's got an eight-year-old daughter and one day she asked me daddy do you know taylor swift it was the morning after we'd written one of the songs and every time we'd write a song it was like a weird lightning bolt getting the struck by lightning or something exhilaration with electricity i looked her (laughs) i looked her straight in the eye and said no i honored my confidentiality he sounds like he's at the fucking nuremberg trial there at the end (laughs) like (laughs) sounds like his wife should be asking him some questions as well he's getting very excited about just fucking writing sessions over zoom isn't he it's taylor swift like a weird lightning bolt getting this getting struck by lightning I like was he in his room just being like yes we've done it again magic um I guess it, it seems like the kid knew what was up right why would she just randomly ask do you know Taylor Swift surely she was hearing him talking to Taylor Swift in the next room <laughs> <laughs> Aaron Desner needs to cover his tracks a bit better but he you know he went on to say that the world's in a different place right now no one really knows what we're doing or where we're going all the rules are being written live music isn't happening and in a way it's nice to make something and just put it out because people are stuck at home and you know are able to hear things this would be a really positive gift for Taylor Swift fans now I guess you know it's been a weird week Craig I guess before we get going with this review Anthony, you want to say because it's, it's it's been a, it's been an absolute avalanche since pretty much fucking five in the morning last Friday uh, when the record finally came out and was met with a lot of glowing reviews and then Stan's getting mad yeah. when people didn't give it glowing reviews and the idea that, you know, something of a, I guess something of kind of a cross, you know, pollination of takes all came together. You're not really allowed to criticise Taylor Swift in a lot of circles. We, we've actually reviewed her last two albums on the show and I think we've, I think we've done a fair job of it and now it's time to really fucking do a big job of it. So how you feeling, buddy? <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling good. Uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling ready. Um, no, I mean, you know, in past episodes and over the years, I've uh, I've had my criticisms of Taylor Swift and the kind of noise that surrounds her, maybe more so the kind of machine. But actually, I mean, you know, it was a surprise release from her, which was the first time she, um, you know, went with that strategy. And it did, you know, had the kind of the reaction that all these kind of big surprise drops do now. I don't think it's it's unique to Taylor. I think the Swifty stuff was ridiculous, but I think all the Stan stuff from like the top tier of, you know, 20 biggest artists is just way out of control, way out of proportion. You know, there's funny kind of snatches of tweets you see. Then there's others where like they're threatening journalists and saying, I know your address. I'm going to roll up when you least suspect it. Don't tell the police. And you're like, 
I mean, maybe it's that's funny because it's probably some 10-year-old somewhere and it's like really extreme, but journalists' lives are being threatened. So not that funny. Um, but I'm just interested in getting into the music, David, because that's what it's all about. For me, I don't know about for you, but it always comes back to the music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay, Larry Gogan. Let's do this. The was charming if a little gauche only so far new money goes they picked out a home and called it holiday house the parties were tasteful if a little loud the doctor had told him to settle down it must have been her fault his heart gave out and they said there goes the last great american dynasty There she goes, Taylor Swift, uh, the track being The Last Great American Dynasty, as I pronounce it, track three from Folklore, uh, the eighth album from Taylor. Um, Dave, I prepared a primer, but it did focus quite heavily on the fact that she's the creator of one of the best music videos of all time. Uh, Officially, let's not go there. Let's have your primer instead. We can always go there, Craig, but I appreciate you giving me the opportunity (laughs) to step up this week. I guess real quick before I get going... We need to make a call on this. Is it Dynasty? Is it Dynasty? I've been saying Dynasty, perhaps influenced by Taylor Swift. I say Dynasty as a general word, but actually the show Dynasty is Dynasty. I don't know if it's some Southern thing. It might be a country thing. I'm going to stick with Dynasty to be contrary in Irish, but Dynasty works. I'm going to go with Dynasty. And as noted there, yeah. It's a bit more glamorous. (laughs) There goes the last great American dynasty. In a way, sure, there is, of course, an unavoidable inherent Americanness to one Taylor Allison Swift, not to mention the whole dynasty thing. Now 30 years young, forever the blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl next door, albeit one you can't talk to unless you fill out a non-disclosure agreement or something, I would imagine. As with any major label proposition, Swift's image, persona, aesthetic, everything, really, feels crafted and constructed by a boardroom full of supposed specialists. In the case of Swift, so seemingly pristine and perfect to the point of artificial atmosphere this is arguably true more than most and that's totally fine it's no crime manufactured artistry or strategic support combined with endless resources shouldn't necessarily negate the work or fully reduce the artist particularly if the end product both substance enjoyment merit at all so it's not really all that fair to single swift out in a way that we perhaps don't when it comes to the sheerans and beavers of the world is it a gender thing quite possibly Is it a Sheeran and Bieber register more like reliable human beings thing, given their unkemptness and their increasingly visible flaws, themselves potentially all part of the sales pitch too? Is it any of those things? Is it even unfair? Crucially, does any of it matter? What about the work? That's the most important thing, right? Folklore, the not not all that shocking surprise release of 2020, is the album where Taylor Swift says fuck once or twice. So please... Indulge me, my Colin Farrell, for a moment when I say fuck the net worth, the 4th of July, celebrity fill parties and the carefully curated Instagram posts thereof, the personal life section on the Wikipedia page, the tabloid bonfire, the feud with Kanye West that almost certainly got out of hand when both parties attempted to wheel it to their advantage. Fuck all of it. Fuck the argument that Taylor Swift is suddenly now credible because she chose to work with Bonnie Iver and Aaron Desner and that she somehow holds her own in such oh-so-exalted company. Same time, fuck the idea that a pop star is simply making a more quote-unquote indie album is all that brave. By the same token, fuck the notion that all this wasn't part of the plan, that each and every manoeuvre isn't assessed like an end-of-quarter earnings report. Fuck the shocking revelation that the label didn't know about the album until hours before its release. Fuck the five-star reviews that went live the minute the record did. And most of all, fuck the critic-attacking stands and their pretty hate machine. 
There's an album in here somewhere, and it may very well be a damn good one. All of which, Craig, is to say, it's not very summery, is it? <laughs> well, Dave, my primers are usually just me kind of hastily looking at Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, yeah, I like. I agree with you on a lot of those points. I think I come at them from some different angles. Um, the whole conversation around it is enough to kind of turn you off for sure. Um, and it's tough to kind of disentangle yourself from a lot of the rhetoric that has been, you know, put out there over the last week or so. Uh, okay, so folklore. Um, I don't have any great hatred for this whatsoever. I enjoyed lots of it quite a bit. Um, things it's not i guess it's not reinventing any wheels whatsoever um it's not really artistically ambitious only insofar as i think it's you know it's industrious enough turnaround it was four months uh by all accounts um completely composed during lockdown um looking at some of the reviews it's it's certainly far from flawless um it's not a flawed masterpiece which is occasionally even better um but i think also it's it's not a case of like the national or Aaron Desner arriving like the kind of indie Calvary to save her from fake pop or suddenly like uncover this songwriter that people didn't know about. Just kind of a lot of straw man arguments as well floating around. And I think it was clear that she's got like really good songwriting chops just from a, a kind of craft point of view uh, on 1989 and prior if you were kind of paying attention. And, you know, that goes for both sides in terms of the stuff that's being said because I know her fans like you know there was tweets put out where it was just like um Ryan Adams a few years ago was like I can improve your music by doing it this way and then this album is her response going uh actually I can do it that way much better thank you very much which is just like such a weird narrative just because she's dipping into kind of folk rock music um so obviously much has been made of the Desner connection I actually think quarantine more so than her chief collaborator is um the main impetus for a lot of this material and her way of working. I do think, unlike the last album, which was like a course correction after the disaster of reputation, this isn't overthinking things so much. I think she's had space to focus on her writing. Uh, she's talked about like dipping into like history, uh, fantasy, kind of character studies, which I think are the strongest points of this album. Uh, some work. Uh, I think the Teenage Love Trilogy it's kind of her playing to her strengths and I think some of them are quite sweet and some don't. Um, you know, the the tribute to her grandfather in World War II and tying it to kind of the COVID frontliners and PTSD and it's just so overwrought. It becomes this Hallmark Channel thing. Um, Looking at the sound of it overall, I mean, immediately you're into kind of like autumnal keys. It's like doing a Joni Mitchell river thing. There's those ambient swashes you're going to get from the Desners. I think Bryce even was brought in for the, the tasteful strings. Um, Aaron has talked about some of it being his best work. I'm kind of like, no, I don't think so, man. Because on so many of these songs, I'm like, I'm waiting for Matt to break into light years because it's just so many of them sound like like national tracks by numbers. I think she does kind of quite well over them. Um, and the sparse kind of tasteful thing suits her, but it doesn't push her whatsoever. Uh, I think lyrically she's quite good. Um, there's lots of quotables, enough from like a kind of memeable sense. There's clever wordplay, there's arresting poetry. I do think the craftsmanship's really good on it. Some of the details are really nice. Um, I don't think any, there's no real stunning features. Uh, I'm like seldom moved when I listen to this music. 
if it happens, it's in the first half. I think there's some great stuff there. The the opening track, I think, is her um, discussing herself, but through a kind of proxy character, and it's subtly done. And there's another track um, elsewhere where she's. It's kind of like a revenge tale. Uh, again, through through a kind of character, which is like the best attempt at that kind of song she's done. I think when she gets into the kind of the childhood stuff, like the like the seven, and she's channeling another character, she says more about herself in a good way than she does when she's just doing the kind of conf- confessional pop stuff. So I do think there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, second half, though, I'm losing interest completely. Uh, and of course, it comes back to that problem we're constantly seeing with pop albums where it's bloated beyond belief. You could immediately chop at least four songs off this thing. So I watched the um, I watched the Netflix documentary, Miss Americana. I'm really putting my work in this week, Craig. Uh, 85 minutes. Yeah, I, yeah, when I saw <laughs> you were doing that, I was like, Jesus, Dave. Also, that was the same same moment I was looking up fucking conspiracy theories about um, Harry Styles having a pseudonym credit on Exile. Freaking William Bowery, whatever it's called. Um, we oh, went yeah. deep. Aaron Desmond was asked about that as well. And he was like, oh, I don't know who it is. He's just a friend, I think. And it's like, who cares? Uh, yeah. We'll talk about the Bonnie Bear track in a moment. We'll play a bit of it as well. Because I do want to get into the weeds on this one. I do want to get into some of the tracks. Um, but I'll start off by saying that in Miss Americana, there's a moment where she goes into... So that, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a Netflix documentary that came out in January. Uh, she was heavily involved in the making of it. And as such, there's no way around it. It is a propaganda exercise. I think it's good. I think it's mostly good. And there were times when I was, you know... Uh, charmed and affected and you know it does its job you know like there are points when you do feel sorry for and you do see the person behind the machine and you're like oh and also one thing that i I must say like they do replay the Kanye west you know infamous vma moment and i gotta say i've long passed the point of finding that funny i think it's actually pretty gross like it's kind of an awful thing to do to someone even if these are like big celebrities and it doesn't matter like you know it's a young it was an awful thing to do yeah. like he was hammered it was it was a drunken mistake like yeah, yeah it was terrible and like like i would have i probably i would have found some mirth in that for a while but it is just a pretty terrible thing too and you can genuinely see how much it fucking affected her and like there's a part where she's being interviewed backstage afterwards by people and it's clear that she's heartbroken because she loved his music and she felt completely humiliated by him and also thought that everyone was booing her. I think she was like 17. So it's a horrific thing to happen. And I got to say, I mean, like, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, this is awful. There's no defending this. Um, It's not fair. Even if, again, this is like, what are we talking about here? You know, oh no, someone's fucking MTV Moon Man moment was ruined. But like, you know, it's all part of the fucking conveyor belt of an insane industry and in fairness you know taylor swift is one of these people that can never just walk down the street you know like would you want this life and i do think the documentary does a very good job of humanizing her but of course that's what it's there to do so i kind of push pull anyway there's a moment in it where she goes into her record label and she's talking about the album that would become lover and she's basically saying how um yeah so i'm aiming for like 16 to 20 tracks on this one and they're all like woo and she's like yeah i know and i'm like no <laughs> i'm like this shouldn't be like a cheerable moment it's like it should be like just knock like craig marlon manson announced that he's got a new album coming out in september and i'm like unreal 10 tracks thank you marlon manson appreciate that and this album i know i say it all the time i know it's boring i know i'm annoying but if this album was 10 tracks long and included the first seven songs on this i'd be looking at a really fucking really i'd be i'd be willing to be to believe some of the uh the hyperbole that has come out and again some of the hyperbole has been outrageous and it's like i get it you you know you want to be part of this critical moment you want to be part of the discourse and you want to add to it and a lot of people have done that in different ways um one of my problems with this record is that it's not remarkable it's just not remarkable and i've been told that it is Mm -hmm. and here's the thing that's okay 
like I do think that she's a good songwriter and I do think that that has existed for a long time. And I do think that you could argue that she doesn't get the respect that she deserves. And it is unfortunate, you know, that, that maybe some people on this one will overshadow her to a degree. I haven't seen those arguments and I've seen a lot of straw man stuff about that. I don't know. I'm sure there are bro dickheads out there who are like, well, now it's only credible because Aaron Desner's on it. Like, fuck that. That's bollocks. Um, Aaron Desner has been obviously incredibly um, defacing, I suppose, and just kind of like, or self-defacing or whatever, and just being like, it's been amazing to be part of this project. It's clearly elevated him. That's the one good side of the stands. It is kind of funny to go onto his Twitter and just see all the replies to anything he posts about Taylor Swift and all these stands being like, thank you so much, Aaron. It's magic what you've done. It's incredible. And you're like, it's a real like Liverpool, you'll never walk alone thing for him. <laughs> like, it's just weird <laughs> that way. But at yeah. the same time, I mean, I, I think this is a good album. I think the first seven tracks are very good. Uh, and the, I think the track in particular, Seven, that you mentioned earlier on, I think, I think that's the standout for me. And I did get affected emotionally by it. It did fucking hit me in the chest and quite brilliantly. So uh, it's about, you know, her recounting like a summer spent with a childhood friend. And it's clearly like a very bad home situation for the friend. And she talks about that and how it's through the eyes of a child. And um, she has a thing where she talks from her... I guess her point of view now as an adult and she has a line where she says though I can't recall your face I still got love for you and I thought that was absolutely beautiful it was so simple so tender and extreme empathy and just really really well put together you watch her in in Miss Americana and she basically like she's big into her rhythm she's big into finding the rhythm in a song and dancing with it and that's kind of I guess a, a staple and a signature of, of a lot of the songs that she puts out into the world and there's a lot of that on this one. Um, she doesn't trip herself up, but there's some there's some incredibly strong stuff on here, even if it does kind of emerge in like the Lana Del Rey mode. But I, I don't mind that because to me, Lana Del Rey is not a genre. You know, it's like, it's fine. Like, I think Cardigan is a fucking excellent song. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love it. Um, it's really good folk pop, yeah. And and there's, yeah, there's some, there's some really, really strong stuff. But again... It wobbles a bit when August shows up, which is a very Jack Antonoffy, Jack Antonoff song. And then the second half, like I found myself all week, like having to work hard to take in the second half of this record. Um, it's 16 tracks long. There's actually a bonus track, like a 17th one called The Lakes, which I presume that you get as a bonus. So I've if not you, heard. Yeah, I, presu- <laughs> I, I presume you get it as a bonus if you like survive a night in the woods or something. I don't know how that works. But also there's a situation as well where in amongst all of this, in amongst all of this incredible rebirth or incredible warmth that she's apparently bestowing upon the world, you're still seeing tweets like um get the original voice note version where i you know talk to aaron desner on cardigan attached to the song you can get eight different versions of it now exclusively at itunes and don't forget to get your cardigan it's like fuck like that whole element is just so jarring with what this album is supposed to be i think both things can be true or one doesn't totally negate the other right because i can see uh, like i'm i'm gonna give kind of benefit of the doubt and be like this the result of this album does sound like it was spurred a moment. Um, clearly, she saw an opportunity to kind of go a bit back to basics. Like, that's just a kind of a, a bit of an obvious choice. But she was clearly relishing working with Desner. Um, they were clearly working that way. It is kind of rustic sounding in terms of, you know, that as- aspect of it. So I think just because then once the kind of machine gears back up after she's gone okay i've got this batch of songs and they're like great how many tracks brilliant streams 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 and then they all get in a room and they carve up the various marketing opportunities and go oh well you know um she's got all these voice notes i mean could we do something like that'll tie in with the whole kitsch thing of like the country blah 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 i feel like a lot of that's maybe obviously she has over oversight of all of it but if her team's coming to her going, listen, we can maximise your revenue by putting out eight different covers and 
Um, you know, it'd be a great thing for fans to get their hands on a voice notes, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, okay. Like I can, I don't think that ruins the experience or the honesty of the album for me. Well, I mean, you talk about honesty and actually in the opening minute of that documentary, there's a point where she says, my entire moral code as a kid and a now uh, is a need to be thought of as good. It was all I wrote about. It was all I wanted. It was the complete and total belief system that I subscribed to as a kid. Do the right thing, do the good thing. And obviously I'm not a perfect person by any stretch, but overall, the main thing is that I always tried to be was just like a good girl. And I guess part of the documentary is about her rebelling against that idea to a degree, but you can tell, I mean, like, she's like, you know, a fucking, like, raised in a loving Christian family and all that kind of jazz. And, like, a big part of the documentary is about her, like, finally, like, getting political. And it appears, if if what I'm seeing is true, and again, I'm always aware of the veil of propaganda attached, but it does appear that she is someone who's wanted to be a bit more up- outspoken and forthright on issues about feminism and politics and so on. And fucking more power to her. I mean, like, you can come late to the game. Everyone does. I mean, we have in different course, in yeah. different respects, even just this year alone, and it's important important to to learn and to change and like that's what life is about so i like these elements because they help break down an artist who i've previously found to be completely impenetrable and i don't know like with regards to just like the the automatic wave of like fawning and, and 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 protestation when this record came out i'm just like can we just take a fucking minute please can we just take a fucking minute to not automatically say that it's amazing just because it's a bit different because i don't think it's that different from what she's done before it's different enough for maybe the audience but i still think it's operating within a very similar kind of sphere let's take a listen to exile which has bonnie Vare on the track because i i really want to know what you think of this one so i'm leaving at the side door so step right out There is no amount Of cry I can do for All this time We always walked up everything like You didn't even hear me You didn't even hear me You never gave a warning sign so many All this signs. time I never learned to read your mind It's Exile. It's like track four, I believe, on the record. And it's a song that I both really like and really don't like because, okay, first of all, right, people are saying like, oh, it's, it sounds a lot like Falling Slowly, which I don't quite hear, thank God, because that song is, to me, as bad as a song can be, really. Um, I think it's more <laughs> of like, I, I, I get more of a, like a shallow Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga vibe just in terms of the melodrama of it, you know, and the kind of, you know, the, the union better. of the two voices and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, slightly better. Yeah. Um, I think this. I think it's a classically constructed duet, and it works in that regard. But this is the thing, right? Bonnie Vera's yeah, voice, like, like in his verses, are very low register. I saw someone on Twitter say, like, "Oh, it's nice to finally hear Bonnie Vera like saying like what he would sound like if he didn't have all those effects and stuff." And ultimately, you know, it's pretty fucking boring, <laughs> which I think is interesting. <laughs> well, it's his like early career. I mean, <laughs> I like. I the like song, it as well. I, but it's a bit too forced, isn't it, or something? Like, I don't know. It feels. Not overwritten. I think it's kind of perfectly written for what it's it, what it is, but you can kind of see the workings, and it is that thing of like, it's the problem I keep coming back to. I think with a lot of her writing, and Justin Vernon's kind of guilty of it here to an extent because I know he didn't write the guts of the song, but he added the bridge, and the bridge to me feels like he's kind of going, 
you get into that kind of polite, very polite pounding of the keys and it swells and it feels like he was like, well, I have to add in a fucking emotional bridge here. And it's so kind of textbook that I just can't really connect to it. Like Again, she's got some great lines on it. Like, I like the stuff about like, you know, um, the new kind of boyfriend, you know, viewing him as like an understudy is kind of cool, you know, balancing on breaking branches. It gets a bit mixed up in its metaphors. I think it is maybe overwritten. This is the problem I keep coming back to with Taylor Swift. And I think it's more my problem with, she totally comes out of the Nashville system, right? That's like, you know, she moved there when she was in her teens. She learned the ropes super well, does it better than anyone at this point. But it's like, it's a type of pop music. Like I think when pop's done really well, there's maybe two ways you can do pop music, right? Really well. I say this to someone that's never written a great pop song. <laughs> but I think you can like do kind of, you know, very craftsman-like, join the dots, um, like, you know, executing kind of sequential chords really well so they're satisfying these kind of patterns that just fit naturally together. And I think that's what she does quite a lot. She kind of always gives you the obvious stirring chorus that will kind of satisfy that itch. She, you know, there's a lot of kind of tropes in her work. She doesn't do as much of the other thing, which is like, you know, adding that novelty of like the unexpected. She never really pulls the rug out from under you. I never feel wrong-footed by some of her writing. She never leaps off into somewhere and I'm like, wow, that gives you that kind of, you know, trail of a really good pop song where you're just like, I need to replay that and replay that and replay that. And I think that kind of, it feeds into her voice as well. She's a very accomplished voice. It's kind of clear as a bell, but no real hidden depths there. There's no real quirks on a lot of the songs. Emotionally, they're well-written, but the inflections aren't quite there. She's kind of, it sounds like she's going through the motions and it feels slightly pedestrian at times to me. It's not the worst criticism in the world, but it's just what separates, you know, top of your game from, I guess, maybe the geniuses or the kind of more out there artists. Yeah, for sure. I was never surprised by the record. I like it. I do like the album. And like the last point I'll make about my usual bloated record thing is this. It's especially frustrating on this one because the really good 10-track album is actually already here. <laughs> the first seven songs, maybe August the 8th one, like it's, I can see why people like it. In the back half, like you got to really kind of dig in and like find the right ones. I mean, like there's some there's some very generic stuff on here. Illicit Affairs is a dreadful song about people having an illicit affair. Dreadful. It's very bad. Like it's a, it's a, it stands out because the other stuff is quite well accomplished and quite well constructed and like really fits this certain level of a tone and a narrative. And then that comes along, and you're like, why is this here? I don't like Mad Woman. Um, it's very clearly a shot at like Kimye and other people as well. But even just, it's also just but a it's, bit like the problem with that is like as I, as I said, you know, she's got songs like My Tears Ricochet, which is her doing the same subject matter but very well like and subtly and and then you have this song mad woman where she's immediately talking about like scorpions stinging you to kill and you're just like oh it's so on the nose not necessary whatsoever you got some good stuff though epiphany is a very nice song peace and hoax are good closers but you could probably pick just one of those you know and like ultimately if you if you shored this down if it wasn't a consideration if it didn't need quote-unquote fucking need in this world that pop stars live in need to be 16 tracks with a 17th bonus track you've got a really strong like very very well put together album that i understand your problem with like it not fully shattering you emotionally or surprising you i had those but it did it did work for me on an emotional level more than i thought it would 
I think that there's some very, very strong stuff on here. And there's some stuff that I will definitely like take with me for the rest of the year. The one cardigan, I like Exile, despite it's kind of, <laughs> you know, ridiculous. Sorry, I thought, you were gonna, I thought you were going to finish that sentence with for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. She's, fi- she's finally worked her magic, Craig. I will take, I'll take invisible string wherever I go for the rest of my days. No, but seriously, the one cardigan. I like the last great American dynasty. I think it's fine. I think she actually gets away quite well with using the word gauche in a pop song. I know some people have seized up on that one. Right, it's pretty yeah. good. Uh, Exile Bon Iver, it's, it's a keeper, even though you've heard it a million times before. My Tears, Ricochet, Mirabal and Seven are, are, are all great. Seven in particular is excellent. And some good stuff in the back end, but it just, it, it, it isn't this revolutionary thing that a lot of people seem to think it is. I think a lot of critics have not so much embarrassed themselves, but I think a lot of critics have definitely like, they made a decision. They made a fucking decision here. And it's like, I saw like a thread during the week from an indie label, which is, again, is too far in the other direction. It said something to the effect of, you do realize that like the indie critics, like, you know, like you do realize that like your reaction has actually been thought of and like bought, not bought, but like tailored, ironically enough, and planned for. And that was the move. And it's all about, you know, the framing of this and how it's put together. And it's, it goes back to that weird, like, you know, remember, I think you referenced it before when Rolling Stone gave... Paris Hilton's album A Better View Than The Killers and it was like oh that's just them trying to be postmodern this is people trying to be postmodern and create a moment and go with the moment and listen in fairness we fucking need moments especially in 2020 we need stuff like this it is exciting I just don't think that under the hood some of the things that have been written are actually there but it's a very good album lastly I will say this for anyone who isn't aware like the stands have been out in force especially Pitchfork gave it 8 out of 10 the writer was Gillian Mapes she wrote an excellent review which was full of praise And she nailed it in the middle of it. She basically was like, you know, there are people out there who dismiss this project from the get-go as a cynical act, and that's not the case. But there are also fans who think that this is an example that Taylor Swift can do literally everything. And she's like, that's also a stretch. As so often the case in life, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think this is a good album. I'm giving it 7 out of 10. Yeah, I think it's a 7 for me. Um, I can't give it any... Any lower, there's some really accomplished stuff on it. I think the, yeah, The Last Great American Dynasty is um, one of the best songs that are honouring um, someone that used to own the mansion you now own, which is a very small subgenre. <laughs> there's uh, spoilers a few for songs like that. top five there, Craig, thanks. <laughs> George Harrison's The Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp is another one, which is an absolutely sensational song. This is right up there, it's really good. Um and yeah, she knocks it out of the park quite a bit, but it's got to be a seven for me. As I said, like, it's just, it's very craftsman-like at times. I really like the fact that she is clearly loving her craft. Um, I like that she's a pop star on the level of Ed Sheeran and is writing these lyrics and not the fucking Sheeran lyrics. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's quite literate stuff. There's stuff there where I think our fan base will be able to explore different influences further. Um, oh, speaking of which, I will end my scoring with the culmination of the Teenage Love trilogy um, where it hits that kind of, I think cheesy on purpose finale of like she's she's basically appropriating a teenage boy's perspective, which is fine. Um, where it's like the end of the teen movie thing and he wins back the girl. The melody is, and um, our sonic architect will help me out with a little clip of my own. <laughs> it's basically this, which I love, but it's kind of the problem for me. Do you ever feel like breaking down? Do you ever feel out of place? Like somehow you just don't belong and no one understands you. There's a place for Taylor Swift. There's a place for Simple Plan. It's all good. 7 out of 10. All right. Next week on the show, let's see if it'll be all good with Fontaine's DC as they launch a hero's death. It'll be out 
the same time of this podcast. I will say, Craig, putting all my preconceptions aside, I'm intrigued to hear it. I hope it's good. I think it's going to be a masterpiece, Dave. <laughs> we'll <right>, see. Okay. <laughs> Gauntlet laid down. Excellent. Okay. It's top five time, everybody. Everyone's favorite time of the week, I would imagine. And this week, it's unlikely slash unusual slash strange and weird collaborations. Uh, I guess before we get into what we think, I mean, because you texted me during the week, you were like, how deep can struggling. this rabbit hole go, you know? And like, for me, yeah. it's, it, it's about top line artists kind of sharing a microphone together, that kind of stuff. But everything's open to interpretation. So I'm going to play a sample. This isn't in either of our top fives. I did confer with you on that one just to find out. As usual, though, I don't know what, what is in Craig's top five. He doesn't know what's in mine because that's the fun little yep. suspenseful game that we play with each other. So we're going to play a clip. And then we're going to come back in, and then we're going to do the top five. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Uh. Yeah. Ready? Uh. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need y'all to roll. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, nigga, make some noise. Get him, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> that is, of course, uh, Jay-Z and Linkin Park. Collision Course. That's no encore from 2004. Six-track record and uh, divisive, I would say. I was talking to former guest of the show, uh, friend of the show, Mango, of Mango and Math Man fame, uh, during the week. Yeah. Exchanged a couple of DMs on this very issue, because I remember him before giving out about this track, and I basically mentioned him to be like, you hate this one, don't you? And he's like, I'm not fond of it, no. <laughs> and then I, I basically got into it with him, and his argument basically is that it's a very cynical cash grab that enabled both p- uh, parties involved to cross over their fan bases, <laughs> respectively, and, you know, make a chunk of change, which is probably true, and fair play. Synergy, but, uh, man, yeah. It's all about the synergy. <laughs> my like problem it with it is that... <laughs> with this song my problem with. Yeah, I think this work. Like, I think the um, like the Chester vocals work really well. My problem with it is a lot of the existing Jay Z songs already came with way like way better musical backing just from the samples. I mean, like encore. You know, you're you're ditching a Kanye West classic for a bit of Linkin Park kind of burbling when they're going into that you know electronic phase. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't quite work for me. I do like the energy of the vocals being combined, but musically, nah. Well, it did work in 2006 when Michael Mann put it into Miami Vice and made the best film of all time. Oh my time. God. I instantly <laughs> got an image of Colin Farrell fucking sleeves rolled up just on a fucking yacht or speedboat. Dude, that film like... fucking rules. People hate it. It's so good. Colin Farrell goes I'm going to have to go back to it. Colin Farrell, at like the height of his like drug abuse, probably in, in Hollywood, he works for the character. Uh, he goes up to like a, a woman at one stage and he's like, hola chica. And I'm just like, this is the best film ever made. It ends with Mogwai Auto this- Rock. I, I kind of remember it being like like stylish and enjoyable just like as a kind of languid watch, but actually quite boring. Oh, it's Is totally it? incomprehensible. Like, I have no idea yeah. what's going on. <laughs> like, yeah. It feels to me like it's probably like the film equivalent of the last 1975 album. Like, I'll kind of stick it on and be like, yeah, I'm enjoying this weirdly, but fucking hell, this is all over the place. Okay, well, let's. we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about our top fives <laughs> this week. Um, I'll, right. I'll say about mine real quick, by the way, that like I lean towards I lean towards the very unusual and mostly quite bad. So in my okay. five, right, my, the first one that I will play, I want you to go first this week, but I will say that like the first one I will play is like a good version, something that I think is very good, very wholesome, very positive for the world. The other four are a sliding scale of dreadful. So that's that's where oh, I've come my, from this week. Okay, this is, this is bizarre because I am now... 
Uh, I'm going to do the exact opposite. We did not collaborate on this. Um, I don't know. Positive Vibes kind of took hold of me briefly on like Tuesday, which was a uh, turn up for the books. So there's some kind of like positive revelations here for me. But I will start with something that's just absolutely horrible. Okay, so my number five, there's a 15 minute video on YouTube explaining why this is the worst song ever made. But I think... 30 second clip will probably do it. Conversate clear the air, but I see that red flag and I think you wish I wasn't here. If you don't judge my new rag, I won't judge your red flag. quite bad about even playing that now that was brad paisley and ll cool j doing their bit for like i don't know racial solidarity in 2013 it was accidental racist uh which is an accidentally racist song (laughs) Um, ironically enough even in the kind of like retrospectively (laughs) like loosey-goosey days of 2013 this was this was raising eyebrows (laughs) it's cringe awfulness it's um, it's just bad. I think it came from a good place from the two lads, but my god, um, yeah, it's kind of like enabling awfulness, really. So in the Confederate corner, I guess you've got country star Brad Paisley. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, Dave. He's he's a West Virginian, good old boy. Um, he's like sold over ten million albums. He's got like three Grammys. Um. And then in the, like, proto, like, MAGA Kanye corner, we've LL Cool J, um, who is basically saying, listen, don't worry about the past, can't do anything about it, if you'll just let me indulge in my black culture, we can get past it. And there's some Peaches Alliance in there, it's just, yeah, I won't, I won't really repeat them. <laughs> um, Paisley said at the time he was inspired by the films Lincoln and Django Unchained. <laughs> And I mean, a lot of his quotes around it are like, again, really well-intentioned, but like clawed-footed. And, you know, he's talking about how he finds himself caught between Southern pride and Southern blame and how he's proud from where he's from. But like, he's obviously ashamed of themes such as slavery and racism, quite rightly. But then you have LL Cool J, which is like, first of all, LL, as much as he's had some bangers and he's a huge star, like, he was never the most political or, like, you know, conscious of rappers. He was a weird kind of get. And then you have him on this song really just kind of, like, giving the Confederate argument a pass with some unbelievable lines. Uh, he said in 2019 in Rolling Stone um, interview that he was not apologising for it. Um, he was like, if someone's crazy enough to think I was suggesting we do some tap dance Amos and Andy shit, basically kind of, like playing up to the white crowd, um, that was not the thing. He was saying people need to look past their feelings. This was a dispassionate, intellectual and efficient way to tackle the topic. Um, Paisley's kind of said, no, I got it wrong, mate, (laughs) and moved on with his life. As I think we should move on with this list. It's bad, Dave, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's fair. I will say that, you know, when it comes to nuance and dexterity and wit on genuinely sensitive issues, Ladies Love Cool James would be at the bottom of my phone list. Uh, <laughs> number five for me. Okay, um, I'm going to play like a lengthy splice here. Uh, it could be like a, a bit like a minute and a half, two minutes. Uh, the scene is, I'm going to give you the start of the clip. I'm going to give you the end of the clip, right? So it's it's from a live performance. Uh, the scene is Glastonbury in 2016, Coldplay are headlining the Pyramid stage. And this is legitimately unusual collaboration because it's one that came out of a, a horrendous tragedy. But in my mind, what Coldplay did, and they're a band that you can bash and they're a band that we do bash. But what Coldplay did here with this, I think, is one of the most beautiful things anyone has ever done in the world of music, in the world of art. I, I, I find it extremely affecting and like fucking I can never I can never truly hate on Coldplay for doing this maybe you read on the news about that beautiful young band called Viola Beach I don't know if you read about their story a a, a band that just got signed and were just on their first tour of the world and and went through a a tragic accident and uh, got you know they got taken away and we as a band thought that was just the worst you know it it just reminded us of us and of all the other bands that come through here the excitement and the joy and uh, the hope. And we, we really felt that uh, in them. And so we decided as a band, instead of playing Heroes tonight, that um, we're gonna uh, create Viola Beach's alternate future for them and, and uh, let them headline Glastonbury for a song. So, so um, Chris and Jack and River and Thomas and their manager Craig, this is maybe what would have been you in 20 years or whatever. I hope we do your song justice. This is Boys That Sing by Viola Beach. And um, let's send it up the charts tomorrow if, if you feel like it. Let's give it our best shot, fellas. Viola Beach, everybody. That's Chris Martin there at the end of the song. And yeah, essentially Viola Beach were a young English band. They were an indie rock band, very much inspired by the likes of the Kooks. They were all in their early 20s and they, the four members of the band, along with their manager, Craig Tarry, died when their car fell from a bridge in Sweden on the 13th of February in 2016. And it's just a shock and tragedy. I mean, the, the accident itself yeah. has been described by authorities as inexplicable. No one seems to fully know what happened, but it was it was a, hor- a horrendous thing to happen. And like, they were a band that were very much on the rise. Uh, they played Glastonbury, I think, the previous year or something at like the John Peel stage or whatever, which was always a bit of a launch pad. I think Coldplay themselves played the same stage probably back in 2000 or something or before then. And like, here's the thing. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. It, it falls in line with Coldplay's let's all hug the world thing. But, and like, I do think it's a selfless act. I didn't, I don't find anything cynical in it. I mean, it's, it, there is kind of even some humor in like Chris Martin being like, well, we we're going to play Heroes tonight because of course they would do a, a cover of Heroes. And, yeah, but yeah. instead they do this. But to me, it's like, like if, if you, like if it's very much worth looking at the clip on YouTube just to see the full scope of this. But like they're on the main stage of Glastonbury, they're doing their set. And what they do is they have like on the big screens behind them, they have footage of the band Viola Beach playing their song Boys That Sing, because this is Coldplay and Viola Beach Boys That Sing for anyone who hasn't figured that out yet. And Chris Martin, like, you know, 
Coldplay join in with like the choruses and take some of the verses and, and bring it together and there's just something incredibly um, like wonderful and empathetic about it. I find it hard to watch that clip without actually tearing up because I just I just think it's it's such a beautiful thing to do. I can't imagine how it yeah. must have felt for the families of that band watching that moment. I mean, watching it on on whether it was on BBC, millions of people, or you know the crowd of like a hundred thousand or whatever, or whatever were there. It's just it's. I remember seeing it at the time, and it just it just it it took me somewhere else, and I just I, I couldn't really believe what I was seeing, and. I just think that it's 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 such a nice thing to do. It's just it's just a nice thing to do. It's it just is, a yeah. simple They're, nice <laughs> thing to do, and it's just such Coldplay a. Coldplay are clearly a great bunch of lads. I kind of say that without any real <laughs> like humor. Like Chris Martin does seem like a very good egg. Um, just from any interviews I've seen with him, and more importantly, his kind of actions, including this, in a way less kind of <laughs> moving. Although at the time, I actually found it quite moving as well. Well, there was, a, there was, um, he has form for this, right? Not when it was like around such a tragedy, a much more um kind of whimsical thing. It was, do you remember Live 8 and Coldplay were playing? <laughs> and there was this, <laughs> there was a bit of controversy around the fact that um, uh, the lads from, uh, what you call it? Uh, rocking all over the world. It's just, it's, I'm just go, going blank now. Status quo? Status quo. The quo, oh, right, yeah. sorry. Status, yeah. The quo, yeah. The quo, right there. Yeah, the quo, yeah. So they were, they they did the original Live Aid, right? But um, Bob Geldof, did, in all his wisdom, did not invite status quo to play Live Aid whenever, Disgrace. like, 30 years after <laughs> <It's> the popularity. <laughs> The point when I clearly forgot their name as well. But Chris Martin, like when Coldplay were doing their thing, like he was sitting at the piano and he broke into like a piano version of Rockin' All Over the World and was like, the lads should be here and now they are. And it was just like, oh, that's really cool. Wow. <laughs> and it was, it was actually a beautiful little version as well because like, it was like, you know, Chris Martinified and on piano and better than the kind of meat and potatoes rock. So yeah, good, good lads. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's just a sweet tribute like that, that was born out of something awful and maybe just for fucking, you know, five minutes it made people who were connected to that thing just feel like that their friends had actually risen to this kind of incredible status and stage and they didn't have to fucking do it it was just a really nice thing to do and it's always stood out to me and i just think it's it's an incredible thing so but that's as you know wholesome as it's getting guys the next four songs i've got for you okay okay yeah let's change it up a little um so from a beautiful spotlight um sean on an artist's um, to a spotlight shone on an artist who was then like, no, no, don't shine this spotlight on me. Uh, this was my wild card. I've last minute slotted it in because I think it still is, it meets the criteria you've set down, Dave. I think what adds to the weirdness and kind of unlikeliness of this is that one of the pairings still refuses to admit that it's him. It's definitely him. It's definitely very good. That is Danger High Voltage from 2003 and it's Electric Six and Jack White. Um, The band still maintain it's some Detroit auto mechanic named John S. O'Leary who like won a competition. (laughs) (laughs) 
and Jack White's not saying anything about it. Um, but I think like Electric Six have like definitely slipped up uh, plenty I over the years. Did and- not know this, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you're obviously familiar with the song. Are you a fan of the song? I loved it at the time. Uh, I still love it actually. I think it's a, it's clearly in the realms of like novelty, but it's not like trying to be haha funny like gay bar. I think it's actually a really, really good pop song. Just great energy to it. And I think the duetting works fantastically. I'm not a fan, no. I never really was. I never really got it. I remember this was around the time of like, you know, Liam Lynch's United States or whatever, which I think is a better funny song. Like, I think that works. But with this, no, I I could never get on board with The Six. Oh, I thought it was really, really good. And um, it was kind of more in the territory of like a house of jealous lovers for me. It was around about that time there was some crossover between like electro and rock. And I think the reason I had it in as like unlikeliest was because of that weird Jack White thing, right? It's so odd that like there's still a mystery around whether he was on it. Clearly both Detroit artists. And I think it was maybe something that happened before White Stripes properly broke. Um, And I think maybe he's a bit like embarrassed by the fact he was on this kind of quite campy like disco song. Because obviously at the time, right, you've got like White Stripes becoming this big like back to basics band, White Blood Cells arriving. Like they were playful in their kind of image, but they had the whole like strict minimalist thing going. He was having his earnest like childlike writing with like, um, you know, big Delta riffs. So he's never going to admit that he was then taking to like the dance floor with the, you know, gay bar guys. Um, I think his voice is great on it. He kind of does like a feminine thing on it. The video was like him being played by an older woman. It's it's just, yeah. I, I don't think at this point Jack White was like admitting that he even had a libido. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like he was in a band with a sister, not his ex-wife. Uh, Jack White, has by the way. Been, sorry, then, has that ever been confirmed or denied or, or actually oh, clarified? That's totally confirmed. Yeah, they were married. Then they separated, divorced, and then they started a band. It's crazy. <laughs> Jesus, okay. Also, like, he's he's since gone on to, like, um, loosen up a bit. I don't know if the music's gotten any better, but um, he's collaborated with loads of people at this point. I did not realise that he did a song with Insane Clown Posse. Oh, yeah, I knew this. Yeah, yeah, this. yeah, 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 of course. Th- listen, yeah, th- very um, little happens in the world of Insane Clown Posse without me knowing a better Craig, let me tell you. <laughs> I won't go into it, but um, the song was Lek Mick Im Arsh. It's like some dirty Mozart song. I don't know. But apparently he's a fan of the lads and gave them a shout. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. Detroit, man. So, yeah. Okay. Number four for me. Um, I think the best thing about this, because like not every time I do a top five, it's not always a countdown. You know, it's not always a like kind of an increasing thing or whatever, but very much so. So, you know, we're going to start with something fairly inoffensive. And then by the time this is over, people will be very offended. So here's my number four. Yeah, I'm disgusted, never been busted Treat me like a suspect Why am I the one that just can't be trusted? Try harder, discuss it, why bother? I made you, I'll make another and she'll go farther Woo! And you can bet a million on it South of France on a yacht with us chilling on it Da-da-da-da-do, da do 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 da do
Yeah, that's a British pop sensation Pixie Lot. And wait a second, is that Pushy T? Yes, it is. What is Pushy T doing on this song? <laughs> the truth is, I don't know. There's not a lot of backstory about this one, but the song is What Do You Take Me For? It's from 2011. So Pixie Lot was this like pop sensation that kind of came along, felt very manufactured from the get-go. Um, never really hit the heights, you know, never even hit the heights in the UK. It was just kind of like there, uh, putting out songs every now and then, appearing on like Carphone Warehouse ad commercials or whatever the fuck she was doing. Apparently still has a career, hasn't released an album since 2014. And, you know, it just felt, it all felt a bit desperate, you know, it all just felt a bit too, a bit too forced or something, you know, the, the songs weren't really there. She was fine. She was grand. She was inoffensive and just a standard, you know, just pop star. It just didn't really ever take off. So I'd long tuned out, I'd long tuned out of the Pixie Lot, uh, whatever the fuck, you know, news cycle. And I only rediscovered this in the last year or so that Pusha T, in fact, did a incredibly phoned in feature. Um, the bit at the end about like, you know, yacht in the south of France, like, like what? Like, um, and he's in the video. He's in the video. Like, he's just there. Of course and it's he just, is. Like, he turns up for 30 Pusha seconds. Pusha T's never going to miss a music video. Are you kidding me? He loves them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I really don't have a lot to say about this, but it is, it, come on, it's an unusual collaboration. I know that like a lot of uh, hip hop guys do fairly phoned in stuff uh, often. You could, you could have picked a Kendrick Lamar feature for this list for sure, but it's just bizarre. It's like kind of UK centric only. What's the connection? Yeah. yeah. And like, here's a push of T. <laughs> like, I don't get it. Like, yeah, so, yeah. I'd completely, I, I remember it now. I don't really remember his verse, but I must have like, because I maintain that he never puts a foot wrong. So I probably um, very conveniently just completely blotted this from my memory. Um, but yeah, I guess it was a payday for him. Had fun on the music video shoot. Oh, he doesn't um, embarrass himself. Being pushed. It's just, it's just <laughs> such nothing. No, it sounds like, like you know? a push a T-verse. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, my number three. And I've I've given the game away that I, I kind of like all these ones from this point on. So fuck it, here's Bono. <laughs> No, he's cancelled. <laughs> it's Pavarotti, a big man himself. Um, yeah, Pavarotti and U2, uh, the track being Miss Sarajevo uh, from 1995. Actually, it's the band Passengers. This was their like little curio album that they, you know, when they had a band with Brian Eno, um, didn't do much in the way of numbers, so they don't talk about it much anymore. Um, but there's some brilliant stuff on there because it was them getting more experimental. As you can hear from that clip, it's like there's a lot of the Eno ambient stuff going on. Um, like the rhythm section was kind of relegated and they're more kind of rocky leanings. Um, similarly, your Blue Room's great. I think this is really good, actually. I think Bono's voice works surprisingly well with Pavarotti um, when he comes in. And it's quite affecting. I think it's mainly the subject matter that gets me. Um, because it was written about the Balkan conflict and it's a really nice idea for a song. It kind of stops you in your tracks. So the whole album was about, um, it was like a soundtrack for like non-existent films, except for this song, which is 
about a documentary called Miss Sarajevo, which was about like Sarajevo when it was completely besieged. It was um, the capital was Bosnia Herzegovina was cut off um, because of that conflict. And at the same time in the city, um, they held this kind of beauty contest. Um, and it's about this kind of pageant that was held and 17 year old winner. And some of the lyrics are, you know, some of Bono's, like, you know, obviously he can get very sugary and on the nose and all of that stuff. But there's some kind of nice lines where he's like really humanizes that conflict. And he's talking about like these teenagers who are like listening to E17 or just, you know, go- going through their various rites of passage. And it connects for me. I think it works. And, you know, I'm not really a sucker for kind of like that opera kind of stuff. But when Pav comes in, man, it works for me. Um, and of course, there's like a, you know, a Bono anecdote about like him, like, you know, hobnobbing with the celebs. And he's like, um, he's like, well, actually, Pavarotti was very fond of the idea. Um, he'd been asking for a song. In fact, asking is an understatement. He'd been crank calling the house. He told me if I didn't write him a song, God would be very cross. I was like, that is the most Bono anecdote ever. And then I was, I was like, there has to be a photo of like Bono putting sunglasses on Pavarotti. And there wasn't. There was a shot of Bono in sunglasses hanging out with Pavarotti, but, you know, it's all of that. But it works for me. I think the emotion comes true. Subject matter, Eno's kind of light touch. It works. Gorgeous song. I really like the project. Also, I love that uh, Pav is your go-to for Pavarotti. <laughs> you're, you're that close. You, you, were that, you guys were so yeah, close. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, um, I miss him, man. I miss him. Speaking of Bono anecdotes, by the way, I'm not sure if I, I probably told this one on the show before, but I remember telling someone a few months ago and they were just fucking jaw on the floor um it was a hot press interview they did a few years ago when i was still there it's probably like around 2013 2014 and it was like the cover story and i had to transcribe it for another writer and it was a fucking two-hour tape like he interviewed every single member of the band they're on a plane how you two does it get so they're on the plane and at one stage bono explains how he was once on a plane with sophia loren another famous (laughs) italian megastar and apparently sophia loren was afraid of flying and at one stage there was like a like looked out the window just in time for a lightning strike to pierce the night sky and apparently Sophia Loren was freaking out and Bono said don't worry Sophia that's just God taking your photograph (laughs) (laughs) I love him I'm sorry I I think the world's a better place for that (laughs) level of sophisticated buffoonery Oh, if it's buffoonery you want, my friend, my number three, Let's it's inevitable. It. Let's just get it out of the way. I want you on the floor and in a coffin, your soul shaking. I want to have you downing every meaning you've amassed like a fortune. Oh, throw it away, but worship someone who actively despises you. For worship someone who actively despises you. Yeah, it is, of course. Who else could it be? It's Lou Reed and Metallica. The song is The View. The album, a joint 90-minute creation, is called Lulu, came out in 2011. I love that it exists, but 
I think I've only yeah. ever gotten through it start to finish just once, and I think it's horrific. Some people love it. I remember John Kenny in particular, I think it was, giving a real, like, no, actually, this is great. And some people have written kind of, you know, stuff like, oh, in 10 years' time, people will look back on this and say, actually, it was fantastic. It's been almost 10 years, so I can do that now, and I can say that, no, it's fucking awful. Uh, but it's a collaborative record, one of the last things Lou Reed did. Uh, it's the uh, the final full-length studio recording project that he was involved with, actually. He passed away in, in October of 2013, uh, conceptually, Think it had anything to do with the sessions, or I mean, you know, we 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 can but speculate, Craig. Uh, <laughs> conceptually, Lulu is based on the two plays of the same name by the German playwright Frank Wedekind. The majority of the composition is centered on spoken word delivered by Reed over instrumentals composed by, of course, Metallica, with occasional backing vocals provided by Metallica vocalist James Heffield, who, of course, on that track would later declare that he is, in fact, the table. Uh, Reed wrote the majority of the lyrics. It was hammered by critics. Lulu. Reed said that Metallica fans threatened to shoot him due to the collaboration. In response to this, the overall negative reaction to the record, he said, I don't have any fans left. After Metal Machine Music in 1975, <laughs> they all fled. Who cares? I'm essentially in this for the fun of it. Um, Metallica have also been very defensive about the record over the years. James Heffield uh, expressed understanding of, quote, fearful people, that old chestnut, who are typing from their mom's basement that they still live in. Good man James, uh, saying that the band needs to spread their wings and try something new. Uh, Reed said it's for literate people. And bassist Robert Trujillo, who of course is recruited during the Fantastic Some Kind of Monster documentary and always just looks bemused at the situation he's got himself into, said that love it or hate it, it was definitely something that we enjoyed and that we embraced, which is a very nice thing to say. Finally, after Lou Reed passed away, Lars Ulrich said in The Guardian... I played the record for my kids yesterday in the car. (laughs) Stop and imagine that, by the way. And it sounded as relevant and more intense than ever. It sounded incredibly potent, very alive and impulsive. 25 years from now, you're going to have millions... Sorry, it was 25 years, not 10. 25 years from now, you're going to have millions of people claiming that they owned the record or loved it when it came out. And of course, neither will be true. I think it's going to age well. When I played it yesterday, it sounded fucking awesome. In some ways, it's almost cooler that people didn't embrace it because it makes it ours. It's our project, our record, and it was never made for the masses and the masses didn't take to it, it makes it more precious for those who are involved. Now, I don't think you're about to turn around and shock me here, but do you appreciate any aspect of this project? I appreciate the creative endeavour. Um, I don't particularly... I know what they were going for, and I kind of understand why it could be enjoyable, but I've never. it's never really captivated me. I feel like Scott Walker would have loved this. Do you know what I mean? Like, sticking this on very loud in the studio. Um, it's right up Lou's street. Like, he was always, like, the massive, you know, um, alt-rock contrarian. Um, and I suppose for Metallica, I mean, once you've reinvented classical music with that whole S&M album, there's no really more mountains left to climb. This was the last peak, really. Um, and a good way for Lou to go out. Uh, okay, so this is... My next choice is in the same territory as your pixie push thing. This is what you get when... Glasgow meets Staten Island. Yep, that's Texas with Method Man 
and RZA <laughs> remixing the whole thing. It's Say What You Want, um, brackets all day, every day uh, from 1997. Uh, we all know that obviously Method Man hopping on a DJ premiere beat alongside Fred Durst is the greatest collaboration of all time. That's a fact and together now. But that obviously made a lot of sense. There's, you know, they're in the same Venn diagram. It's not an unlikely collab, really. This is odd. Surprisingly highly listenable. It's it's kind of very sweet as well, the kind of story around it. I don't know how they actually got together. I don't know how this happened. But it did happen and we just have to kind of live with it. Uh, it works for me. I think it works because the initial song uh, kind of interpolates Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye and the vocal's kind of quite soulful. And I think the RZA brings that out and Meth is like, he leans on it in a really nice way. Um, but what I really like is that both band and Woo got on so bloody well. Um, so, like, I think essentially the band were due to play the Brits um, and team up with Smokey Robinson or something like that. And they kicked Smokey to the curb. And Charlene Spiteri was just like, no, we're, we've just done this uh, remix thing with the Wu-Tang Clan. So we're going to get Method Man <laughs> to debut his rap part at the Brits. And she was talking about how like Method Man was extremely nervous beforehand and she had to like comfort him and be like, it's going to be fine. You're going to nail it. It's absolutely great. Um, their ass was like weird working with Wu-Tang. Um, they also worked with Ramstein as well, apparently. Um, so that was part of the question. She's like, no, neither were weird. They were both grand. Um, actually, the Ramstein thing, we were the weird ones. I actually had to, it was a weird night and it was like a heavy night. I had to get on the plane in a wheelchair uh, so she sounds like fun. I don't know. It was a fun night with the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, she said it was another kind of surreal night. Um, it all went well. And then the next day, Charlene got a call from their manager saying they were banned from the studio because apparently they had guns and crystal meth, uh, which wasn't true. It was just profiling. Um, but she confirms that the Wu-Tang Clan um, to a man, including Raycon, who she's hanging out with, um, are just absolute gentlemen. Uh, they got on really well. It's heartening. It's a great song. I really dig it. I have very little to add, Craig, apart from just to concur with you that And Together Now from Limp Bizkit's Significant Other is in fact one of the great team-ups of all time. It is. I, I was also unfamiliar with this one. Someone responded to me on Twitter with it during the week and I was just blown away. I was like, what? This exists and it works, kind of? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, very nice to hear uh, Charlene Spiteri mothering Method Man and just you know, <laughs> patting him on the head and saying, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it, man. Um I gotta look up this Texas Ramstein thing because I was also unaware of this. Who knew? I think it was a live thing. I haven't actually heard the clip, but yeah, pretty incredible. Um, clearly, a very open. I went through a phase. Um, I went through a phase when Summer Sun came out. I think it was like one of the best songs I think I'd ever tunes. heard. Yeah, yeah. I never really investigated further apart from like the the chart hits. Maybe I should. I don't know. But for I really, that kind really, of like, really hate their big hit in the second half of their career, though. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sky Sports used it forever. Uh, is that the one where she's dressed up like Elvis in the video? Correct. Inner ch- inner child, you make me feel. Yeah, yeah. No, it's inner smile, Craig. Actually. Oh, inner smile. Yeah, which is okay. Yeah. Cause you make me feel. And then it's yeah, like coming up. Yeah. Bournemouth versus Brighton. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> no, you're grand. <laughs> not for me. Uh, also, not for me, Craig. Uh, you talk about you know like different parts of the world coming together different styles of music, different cultures, and the embrace of that. Here's a song which is bound together by uh, some international phone area codes. That's what you want. 
So yeah, if you're uh, dialing the UK or Jamaica, they are in fact the numbers that you need to put in front of a plus sign. That is, of course, who else could it be? It's Sting and Shaggy. The track is 44876, name name of the same album that they made in 2018, a collaborative piece of genius. Um, Right now, I I realise that this is an audio medium, but right now I'm looking at two very unimpressed faces on the other end of my Zoom call. (laughs) Craig and Adam seem upset by what's happened. And... I mean, this one best reggae album at the 61st Grammy Awards in February 2019, by the way. The Grammy famously (laughs) never gets it wrong, so. Of course not. Uh, It's just an astounding project. I remember, like, working in jail at the time, you'd occasionally be sent, like, you know, a lot of unsolicited stuff from major labels and so on. And I once got, like, a, it was, like, email was, like, sampler, Sting and Shaggy. And I was like, sorry, what the fuck? And it was, like, a four-track sampler of the upcoming record, including this song. And it just blew my fucking mind. Sting is really going for it. Really taking us to places that I'm not sure we should be going with him. Uh, He just wants to hear reggae in the streets, man. You know, the politics of the country are getting him down. But what gets him up is is when his old friend Shaggy pops by. Also, they did like so much media around this and they were so earnest. They were like, this is such a union. This is like what we need. This is what music needs. It's just like, this is appalling. Absolutely appalling. I thought this might make an appearance. Um, (laughs) This is appalling. The thing about it is, I remember when it came out, it is both bizarre, but also it seems like it was always going to happen eventually. These two would find each other. It didn't seem that unlikely to me. I was like, of course Sting is now doing this. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, because there was hints of, obviously the police back in the day had drew on a lot of these kind of influences he's always been eclectic i guess he always gives 110 percent whether he's doing like an album of fucking luth music or like um or having tantric sex is where you're going with this i assume yeah that is yeah inevitably where i was going with that um it's yeah it's horrendous it, it sounds like a joke record but it sounds very much like the two of them and it they kind of sound made for each other i've never really been a a sting guy like they're one I'm of glad <laughs> i'd be concerned if you were what's their t- what the hell is a sting guy hey ladies i'm actually more of a sting guy but you know what you like know what he, I mean? he seems like one of those artists where you know people occasionally tell you well actually if you go back to the first like you know two or three police records brilliant stuff on there like i have heard that before and anytime i've slightly ventured back i'm just like what is this like what is this kind of cod reggae stuff? So at least he's consistent and getting like Shaggy on board. Um, but no, I don't think I'll ever be a Sting guy. More of a Shaggy guy. 
that's fair. All right. That's all I got to say about it. It's just disgusting and I'm done with it. Okay. Um, it's time for my number one. And this is my Craig's big revelation. Um, so this collaboration was like top of my mind when I went into making this list at a time when I was like, this is just going to be a wacky thing. Um, I thought this was, I was kind of passing over this because I thought it's a bit of it. It's going to be a one note joke that we've done before on the show. But I've subsequently spent a lot of the week listening to the entire album that they worked on together. Um, it's that time a young Tennessee star gazed into the abyss and Wayne Coyne gazed back. Oh, no. Yeah, that is Miley Cyrus and Flaming Lips, the song being Do It, exclamation mark. Uh, I've been joined by my cat Bowie as well, if you heard any like subliminal purring. Um, he's a big fan Incredible of this. Scenes. As am I, <laughs> incredibly. Um, this is like one of many kind of like crunchy, oddball, catchy songs on this album, Dead Pets. I think it's a bit of a, it's not, okay, it's not a masterpiece. <laughs> But it's like, it's a flawed something. Um, I like the story around it when I started digging into it because this was Miley Cyrus. And obviously all the press was like, she's gone off the deep end. Why is she hanging out with Wayne Coyne? Which was a totally fair question. And I'm still kind of wondering. But it was her like wrestling control from her label. She was on like the last record of her deal. Um, she stopped w- working with Dr. Luke, which is a great piece of uh, business. Um then she went straight into the arms of flaming lips. I don't know. But yeah, like she was smoking weed, apparently taking acid. Um, we thought she was taking the piss. But actually, if you listen to this record, uh, some of the choices that she makes are really good. I think the sound is very good. It's like this Americana psychedelic thing. It reminded me quite a lot of like Beck's work with the Dust Brothers, um, bizarrely. And there's really good songs on it. Uh, Karen Don't Be Sad. Uh, Space, Space Boots is incredible. Tangerine's great. Um, Tiger Dreams with Ariel Pink works really well. Uh, I'm saying this with like no irony whatsoever. It's a very good album. I think it should be like reappraised. It was 2015. I think this was a moment where it's probably like a landmark in terms of pop artists doing what they want. I think this paved the way for Frank doing Endless and Blonde. I don't think you have Frank Ocean. I'm going to step in now. I was was letting you go there for some time. I I think it's now time to wrestle back control of the show. Uh, all for you know outlandish statements, Craig. But I'm not too sure I can. I, 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 I'll also admit I haven't heard the record, so maybe it's fucking incredible. I'll take your word on it. I'm resistant to the idea. Less Molly Cyrus, more Flame and Lips. You know, I just kind of feel like I like a handful of Flame and Lips songs, but generally I can Wayne Coyne and his mystic bullshit can stay far away from me. I agree, and uh, you know, if you see any of the interviews he did around this or in subsequent years, like he's up to his usual bullshit of like. I don't know. It, the kind of whole story around it totally puts me off. But the music is compelling. I would definitely tell people to check it out at least once because you'll find a clutch of songs you might just dig. Dave, you're number one. Oh, it's compelling for sure. My number one. Um, I want you to maybe like cling to Craig's enthusiasm for music there. The mindset. Think about your favorite song. Think about your favorite piece of music in the world. Because I'm going to do the... Uh, it's anti 
anti-god, anti-music. Here we go, number one. Status quo just needs to be mentioned one more time. It seems, Craig, it's status quo and scooter with jump that it. rock brackets whatever you want. I couldn't believe when you mentioned them earlier on. I was like unfucking believable. <laughs> whatever you want by status quo or status quo was a huge hit for the band in 1979, and it was repurposed here in 2008 by the legendary Scooter. Now, one of my favorite things about Scooter, apart from the exceptional music that they make, is that. I think most people in the world think that the singer is called Scooter, the blonde yes. guy. He's not. He's called H.B. Baxter. And they're actually a trio. They've been around for quite some time. Uh, since 1993, actually, they're from Hamburg. To date, the band has sold over 30 million records worldwide and earned over 80 gold and platinum awards. Um, can you guess how many studio albums Scooter have released since uh, the early since 90s? What year? Since the early 90s. Formed in 93. Okay. 25. The answer is 19. But they oh, have released okay. five live albums and five compilation there we albums. Go. So technically it's 29. <laughs> Fair play to them. <laughs> uh, the, the singer, H.B. Baxter, who is very distinctive, uh, he studied accountancy for one term in Hanover. Sounds but ultimately like completed a-, a scholarship in Birmingham as a mechanic. Uh, among the band's more well-known hits are Hyper Hyper, Move Your Ass, Fire, How Much Is The Fish, Ramp, The Logical Song, Nessaja, Weekend, and the question is, what is the question? <laughs> Which is pretty good. Another mechanic. Um, I wonder, does he know John S. O'Leary? <laughs> yeah, this is happy hardcore rave and techno splicing together with some good old fashioned dad rock. It wasn't even like for charity or anything. They just did it. And it was like, apparently like Scooter put out a record called Jumping All Over the World, because I guess that's what they do. And then like did like a big bad repurposed version of it with different features and they got status quo involved i once interviewed francis rossi of status quo who i think may no longer be on this mortal plane a strange man uh he told me about his pan his penchant for going to festivals and people watching and fair enough we all get into that but he was very much like you know you get yourself a good spot at the festival and you can just look around and you're seeing all kinds of weird stuff and he's like you're looking at that couple and you're like oh and she's not and, and as for him, and I'm like, what? I was like, what? What, what kind of what eternal monologue is this? Uh, strange dude. Uh, and also, I remember when I talked to him as well, it was for the classic hot press, like the quickie or whatever. And so, yeah, you know, you, you want to keep those phone calls to about like eight minutes so you don't have too much to transcribe. It's a template questionnaire. Depends I where it goes. Go like, <laughs> I suppose it does depend where it goes. But the problem is that then you get you, you always come away from it. Because to be fair, we've talked about this before with the quickie. 
you'd end up interviewing like strange people and they would have a lot to say. And because you're asking them these template questions they weren't expecting, they would actually like go off on really interesting tangents. And then of course you come back to the commissioning editor and be like, I think this should be a full interview. I've got some really good quotes. And they're like, no, no, just whittle it down to one line, please. And I'm like, for fuck's sake, this yeah. is a nightmare. At a certain um, point, yeah, point is, it was like, Sorry, go on. Finish your point, sir. Couldn't I couldn't get the guy off the phone for like twenty five minutes? Basically, is, is the is the end of that story. <laughs> oh yeah, that was you know that was that happened a lot. At a certain point, I think you could do like, okay, I'll write an online piece and get someone to say it. because it was it was often as you say like it just freed people up. They were kind of caught off guard by some of the questions, and you'd end up talking to like as I do did Sparks about like the fucking ice cream van they used to operate back in the sixties. Um, absolute gold. As for this song. <laughs> I think I prefer Chris Martin's take on the quo. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I definitely fair. do. And I think when, <laughs> when your man yells scooter in the house, that's the moment you get out of the house. <laughs> the best part is it's starting off with that kind of like, you know, little lilting guitar line and then before it's time for the mayhem to emerge. I will say for anyone who's unfamiliar with Scooter, first of all, how dare you? And second of all, look up Nessaja, that's N-E-S-S-A-J-A, and look up the video for it. It's it's exceptional. It contains the lyric, it's not a bird, it's not a plane, it must be Dave who's on the train. So, you know, it's all very, very good. This song, by the way, peaked at number 57 in the UK singles chart, so it didn't lead to a fruitful union, but it got to number six in Hungary. So that's Hungary cancelled. Made your top five, so... <laughs> Made my number one. <laughs> never in doubt. <laughs> and that's this week's top five. Uh, Patreon.com slash noencore. If you want to support the show, engineered lovingly as always by our sonic architect, Adam Shanahan. In the other listening corner, I mentioned it earlier on, Marla Manson is back, 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 baby. He's got a new record called We Are Chaos coming in September, the 11th of September, of course. Uh, he's worked with Shooter Jennings on this one, and he's wearing a Stetson uh, of sorts in the uh, promo photograph. So it looks like he's going country. The title track, We Are Chaos, which I've had on repeat for a solid 12 hours or so, is very, very fun. feels like the end credits to a kind of an alt movie of sorts. Uh, a splice, I would say, of Bowie, Country and Britpop, which I find quite anthemic and enjoyable. Um, Corey Taylor, my, of my beloved Slipknot fame, has put out two new singles of his own. He's got a solo album coming. They are questionable. And finally, uh, Hoobastank. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Hoobastank of The Reason fame. Yeah. Uh, every now and then I like to go down to this weird rabbit hole and look up the video for their song Same Direction in which they audition different lead singers including um, one of the guys from Good Charlotte Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park and of course a 2004-2005 era Kanye West and it's a bit of a banger of a song if you're into big old Hoobastank as I occasionally and I mean occasionally am what about you this week? Um, so Dave there's been some um, movement in the Paul Institute camp um, J. Paul and his brother A.K putting up cryptic messages. Um, there's been releases, nothing from Jay. Um, I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but AK Paul appeared on Annie Mac's radio show on BBC Radio and actually like spoke for minutes. And it was bizarre hearing one of their voices. The new music's pretty good. This new track, uh, Be Honest, is a tune. They've like redone their website and they're releasing tracks from like this, you know, stable of artists they're kind of nurturing. Although they seem to be like the label for these artists and then they don't release any tracks for years at a time. The website, of course, doesn't work when you go to it. It's just, a, as per usual, a glorious shit show with them, but the music is good, which is the main thing. Um, and I've also been listening to Salt, who I mentioned previously. Salt with a U. 
uh, the album's untitled Black Is. It's a really, really good record. They're like this trio, London-based, I think. Pretty mysterious, but that's definitely an album to check out. I think it's going to be... They're thereabouts my list of my end of year list when the time comes. So that's that's really good. And that's that's what I've been checking out. Awesome, Greg. Thank you very much. Next week, it's all about Fontaine's DC and yeah. Hero's Death, their sophomore record, which is already getting its own five-star cavalcade review. We'll see how we feel about it next week. Before we go, though, I want to say congratulations to Nyler Nine and Andrea Cleary for the 100th episode of the Nyler Nine podcast, which is out now. Congrats, you guys. Yeah, if you want pod- to. And also a huge congratulations to Ona Sullivan of the Point of Everything podcast who now lives with me. He gets the honour of being my... Commiseration zone. It's all happening in the Irish <laughs> podcast music scene. But for now, my name is David William Hanready. This has been No Encore. There will be no encore. And we'll be back next week. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.